judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story? Ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized? I'm Kimberly. And I'm Rebecca. Join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Happy March. Did we have an episode in March already? I think we did, but it's still happy March. Yeah, I'm like, I'd have to look at the calendar. We must have. It's the, it, Well, recording now, it's the 17th, St. Patrick's Day. Neither one of us are wearing green. Nope. We're heathens. <laughs> Just total heathens. But we're also not wearing orange, so we're okay. Enjoy if you celebrate, everyone. Drink yeah. your green beer. What's that city that turns the water green? Chicago. Didn't I think it was where you're from? And Boston? somebody got mad? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like one of your sisters got mad because I was like, Boston turns the water green, right? Oh, it was probably Ashley because right? she lived in Chicago. Here goes my voice again. <laughs> I need you. I need. So the theory we have behind why her voice does this is because like all day, like you don't have class today, right? So you don't talk to anybody. Correct. And then you start talking. But we need to like, I don't know, some like, oh. me, 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 me. Yes. <laughs> some tea, some breath exercises, something. Because mm-hmm. this frog punch it in the throat <laughs> no don't punch me good thing we're on zoom this right time. <laughs> you're safe you're safe no I, just, I hate like when people's throats i'm always like clear your throat clear your throat and i know people try and talk through it and i'm like ah, weird like auditory things like i don't like chewing i don't like gum smacking yeah you're like, not an asmr person <laughs> Ooh, no i would vomit i would vomit someone sent me one by accident once like it was long story short this girl like fell asleep and like accidentally sent this thing out to like everyone on her follower list and i was like why would she send me this i don't want to watch this <laughs> and it's like also i don't know you that well this is so weird that you sent this to me and it was like literally like nails on a mic and i was like nope goodbye goodbye gross. i hate goodbye. it i don't like it at all yeah you know what else i didn't like look at that segue there you go okay Perfect. what's that um so we i don't think we had an episode out no we had an episode we did have an episode in march because i was prepping for the oscars mm-hmm. which were last sunday and i watched it home a little, I was with my husband but like i usually like to like get people over and like watch it but also it runs so late so it doesn't really happen and this is the first time that i was so glad that i watched the oscars alone in my house because i lost my mind so like it was good In the beginning, and like, as everyone knows, because I did that Angela Bassett episode for It's a Fandom thing, I was rooting for Angela Bassett. She she should have won the award 30 years ago, and she also should have won it on Sunday, and she didn't. And I will preface all of that by saying I am also almost equally obsessed with Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm a huge fan of hers, too. So this is not about Jamie Lee Curtis, but kind of is about Jamie Lee Curtis. Because I was like, well, if Angela Bassett doesn't win... Stephanie Hsu should absolutely win because the way I weaved in everything everywhere all at once. And she's for her, the best supporting actress, just she to was nominated. In case yeah. people weren't sure. Yeah, so this was the best supporting category. The only people who mattered in it were Angela Bassett, Stephanie Hsu, and then kind of Jamie Lee Curtis. Like she was like third in my opinion, and I don't know anyone else who was nominated in that category. Didn't even bother to look it up. So, like, when they called Jamie Lee Curtis's name, because I was like, if it's not Angela, it's going to be Stephanie. And, like, 
one's gonna be sad but one's gonna be like really good because like stephanie's like this new artist and like she's really great and that movie was amazing and then when they called jamie lee curtis i just started screaming are you fucking kidding me like at the top of my i was like they'd already given it to enough non-white people don't you know seriously (laughs) i have theories i have theories because like so everything everywhere all at once is fantastic and it won the main actor and it won for best supporting michelle yo won for best actress it won for like best screenplay won for best picture i think they were like listen there, we can't give another award to another Asian person tonight. Like, we gotta mix it up. Or the other theory that I've been hearing floating on the internet, which also makes sense, is that much like Angela, Jamie Lee Curtis has been, like, snubbed from this award, from, from, the, from the Oscars in general, for years. So this is their way of being like, hey, we know we, like, screwed you over for everything. Like, true lies, she probably should have won one for. But we know we screwed you over for everything. Here's it now. And if that were the case, it should have absolutely went to Angela if it was going to be a a lifetime achievement award, if you will. And if it was just going to be about everything, everywhere, all at once, it should have went to Stephanie. Like, there's no place in this world that makes sense for me for Jamie Lee Curtis winning that award. And it hurts me to say because I'm a huge fan. And it's kind of been like, I'm like, I have to like take myself back from it because like I'm not hating on Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm hating on the decision that the Academy made because it doesn't make sense. And I, what I tell you, I was mad for days, for days. And then in that award show itself, I was like really annoyed. And I was like, all right, you know what? Let's just watch the rest of this. Let's see what happens. And then I got to, I watched a lot of things, but also not a ton. So I watched like all the short films, the animated and the uh, live action. So the live action, there are five films. Four of them were either directed or starring women and one of them wasn't and the one that wasn't one and I was just like are you like it was okay but there were better selections but also it just feels shady that that it was the one that was all men like there were no women in that one at all like at all and it just felt it just felt fucked up and I was like I I gotta go like I'm just gonna go to bed now and I just went to bed and then I woke up at like two in the morning I was like okay let's see how the rest of the night went and then I saw that, you know, who won for Best Picture. And I was like, okay, good. And then I saw and texted you, like, almost, I think I texted you maybe at, like, 2 in the morning about this because you had seen it, too. Um, best Animated Short. Yeah. Did you see went, them all at Alamo? No, I actually saw them at Syndicated in oh, Brooklyn. Okay. Yeah, That's it's, like, cool. walking distance from my house. So I was like, oh, it's playing here. I'll go see it here. But, like, that animated short that won, I kind of need people to watch it so they can see how fucking stupid it was. <sighs> It was painful. It was painful. Like literally we're sitting there in the theater and all of a sudden she's like, Oh, seriously. (laughs) It's like so saccharine and cheesy. And like, I thought it was a joke. Maybe as a self-help book. Cause it was a self-help book. It's beforehand. So it's, or like, what is it called? Um, the, the boy, the, the mole, the fox and the horse or something. Yes. And it's like, so when it started, it was like, Apple Productions or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is like going to be a big one. They literally paid for that award. They paid like I I just I'm so mad that out of all the things that were nominated, because there were some really good ones in that category. That's the one that won. The one that was clearly the most high budget. There were only two that I liked. Did you Um, not like the flying sailor? That was horrible. Well, 
Okay, so here's the thing about the Flying Sailor. It could have been cool if they had, like, set us up knowing, like, in the beginning it said based on a true story, and you're like, what the fuck? But then at the end it tells you, like, oh, there was an explosion and some guy, like, went flying through the air. But it's just, like, after the whole thing is over. So you've watched the whole 10 minutes of this naked guy flying around. Yeah. And and I just, I was not okay with that. Um, I didn't love My Year of Dicks. I thought I it was just really, like... I don't know. And that's like my time period too, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, I don't, it just, it just did not work for me for some reason. I was just like, uh, uh, whiny nineties nonsense. No. <laughs> See, I don't know. I sat there and like, I kind of think like towards the end, I teared up a little bit. Cause I was like, Oh my God, did I write this? Like, because I, I was one of those, so like my year of dicks is about a, She's like 15 or something, maybe? Yeah, or young teenager. Yeah, that she's like, I'm going to lose my virginity this year. And she like starts dating like the worst people, like some of the worst, some of the best. And it's just like, oh, like there's one guy who turns out to be like gay. And I'm like, yeah, been there. Like it was just very relatable to me and it was fun. And I liked the different animation. Like every, it was, it was done in like five chapters and every chapter had a different animation. I really liked it. I'm surprised that you didn't. I'm surprised no, that I, you I really hated didn't. it. I really didn't. <laughs> well, we both like Ice Merchants. Yes. And ice I merchants liked was the good. ostrich one too. I thought the ostrich one, I liked the meta idea of like going in and out of that like uh, stop motion animation. Oh, the first, I was like, I don't remember this ostrich one, but yes. Yeah, that one I really that was okay. liked. And and then the Ice Merchants one, I thought was the animation style for the Ice Merchants story worked so yes. well with the yes, story that beautiful. was being told. Mm-hmm. And they told that whole story without words. Yes. Like if you can, like, if you can do that and do it well, that's where I think the winner should have been, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but yeah, they went to where the money was and, and not to say like the animation style of the Apple one was cool, but the story just like took me out of it. It just, it took so long and it's so, it's like, like the, the word that came to mind was saccharine. Like Mm -hmm. it's so painfully sweet there's like, oh, but then like they one go to his house the and then they're like, wait, OK, bye, guys. Thanks for walking me to this house. That's not even actually my house, but I'm just yeah. going to like find a home. And as Sean says, how did that kid not get hypothermia? <laughs> he had no jacket. I don't think he had shoes on. I mean, the horse could fly. People are like, what the fuck are they talking about? I think it's on. Is it on Disney Plus? Because I Disney had something to do with it, too, right? No, it's on Apple. It's on Apple, Apple TV. Okay, that it's on sense. Apple TV, yeah. Um, if you have Apple, watch. I, I think people just need to watch it to just be like, what? Like, I groaned in the theater. I was, like, looking around to be like, what is, is this a joke? Because I just did not understand where they were going with it. And there's, like, some line, and it's like, oh, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the mole goes, kind. And it's stuff like that for like 25 minutes yeah. of just like... And some of the things are so ugh. cliche. They're like off yes. of a cross stitch in your great grandmother's house. <laughs> it's so bad. And then like they had fucking Idris Elba is like the mole or something. Oh, and I think he was the fox. The fox, the fox. And I was just like, is that Idris Elba? And then I looked it up and it was. And I was like, how did they get you? How did they get... Money. They paid so much money mm-hmm. for all of this. And it's so frustrating to me because it was so boring. And it was just like, I don't... I didn't get it. I hated it so much. And then it won. And I was like, you know what? I'm so glad I stopped watching the Oscars yeah, last night. That was because literally I would have the just, only category I cared about. It would have thrown me over the edge. And then I saw a TikTok that kind of threw me over the edge. In that same 
the same like award like so like it was best short documentaries and I forget the name of it that one but it was two Indian women and the one woman goes to do her speech and they're like oh it's 45 seconds and then the next woman steps up and they immediately start playing the music so they cut her off completely and then they announced the winner for um, the movie we we're just talking about the short we we're just talking about and they gave both guys enough time to speak both like two British white men enough time to speak both of them um, the TikTok that I saw I guess they like reached out to her and were like what were you gonna say before you got cut off so she like has her speech and I'll post that so you could see it but it's just like yeah like why did they get more airtime than these two Indian women this was like a bigger budget this had like Apple money behind it this probably had like important people quote unquote important people behind it and which is the whole reason why I think it won and it really made me just be like why do I give a shit about the Oscars I don't usually but I do and I shouldn't this was the first time that like we were just like oh you know that's a cool thing let's go do that so anyway yes (sighs) that's my rant that's what this whole episode is about I'm done now (laughs) oh Oh, okay. I've got all right. Well, I won't. I won't share my news then. (laughs) No, wait. What's your news? Wait, I know your news, but they don't know your news. What's your news? Um, I was officially offered and accepted a full time position at Brute College in the Black and Latino Studies Department. Woo! Applause, 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 applause. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited. There's like an orientation, a three-day orientation in August. And, wow. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I start on August 25th and I have to teach like four classes a semester instead of three. Oh, damn. But, um, but the income is a lot higher and the benefits are they exist. <laughs> so oh, I'm so excited. I'm I'm super happy and I'm so glad to be with the department that I'm in now. I really mm-hmm. like it there. I really like being at Baruch in general. So um, yeah. Woohoo. That's awesome. I'm so excited. Yeah. I'm so excited for you. So now we can start doing like risky activities because we have better insurance, right? <laughs> like rollerblading. Blind rollerblading. I'll I'll watch. You go for it. <laughs> I was like, um, that was completely a joke. I would never. Um, listen, I'm too old for rollerblading. Also, those, those how could I watch me. if it was blind rollerblading? <laughs> true, 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 true. But yes, yes, it finally happened. I mean, I've been teaching there for over a decade. Ever. Yeah. I think I started in 2012 there. And um, that's wild. I was. Yeah. Yep. And. It's finally official. It's finally happened. I am now, and I'm one of two new hires in our department for next year. So I'll have You're someone. cooler one. Well, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, um, I really like the other new person that we hired. She came to visit to decide if she wanted to come here or not, accept the offer. She's from California. Oh, okay. And so it, was, it would be a really big move for her. And she was also yeah, offered a job by her alma mater, I think very excited to have her she was really nice we all went out to dinner and such uh, they, that's one of the things when you're newly hired the like department takes you out <laughs> what i never got that <laughs> i you'll maybe you have to Rip. work for a specific like academic department or something maybe. i don't know <laughs> 
I could. There's lots of like, there's always like, higher ed is weird. There's always like moving around, especially if mm-hmm. you're like a like back end, like there's always moving around. My office is losing like three people. One person is actually going to California. Anyway, I think we should get into this episode because uh, we got a lot of information to share. In this episode, we'll be discussing feuds and rivalries between women. We'll briefly discuss our own experiences with rivalries we had with other girls and women and address the history of rivalries in the workplace, the concept of women fighting over men, and the history of feuds, rivalries, and quote-unquote catfights in Hollywood and pop culture. Next, we'll provide a number of examples throughout history of female rivalries, including what the media said at the time and what women themselves had said, have said about the feuds. Then we'll dig into some scientific information on competition and how the media feed into rivalries that really aren't as bad as they seem. Finally, we'll wrap up with the impact of feuds and rivalries on larger society and ask ourselves how we think we can change the current norms surrounding the pitting of women against women. All right, so I'm going to share a little bit about my experience with rivalries. I feel like I had more than I should for <laughs> for someone who's like, I, I mean, I think if you know me now, you don't really mm-hmm. consider me someone who would bother spending my energy on that. But I definitely had a time in my life where I did. <laughs> I was very, uh, looking at these notes, I was like, oh. And then I was like, oh, I feel like I should have more but (laughs) well I just I picked out a couple of specific ones so there was and I'm not going to use I thought about using their full names but then I was like for their sake maybe they don't want to want to know about it but if your name is Nicole and you went to high school with me (laughs) I honestly don't remember what this feud was about but it started in middle school I think (laughs) when I moved to town Um, Mm -hmm. she was popular I was not And one day I just like, I remember one day saying, I think the reason we don't get along is because we're too alike. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) But like, were we, or was I just being like a Janice Ian? I don't know. You were trying to solve problems. I don't know what I was doing, but there was definitely, and and again, like to this day, I'm not a hundred percent sure how one-sided or two-sided that was. Like, I don't (laughs) really know. So another one I have uh, from middle school, high school is Jen. And this is another case where we somehow ended up in competition with one another from like the beginning. And I don't, I don't know what, something one of us said or did annoyed the other or both. Um, but with Jen, we actually did become really, really, really good friends in our last couple mm-hmm. of years of high school. Um, like we used to go out. I'd say every other Friday night, because on the other weekends I was at my dad's, <laughs> um, a bunch of us would go out bowling. And um, she's one of the few people that I've kept in touch with. And then the the other one that I'm going to mention is my sister, Brooke. <laughs> so uh, we were best friends when we were like three to seven years old. And then I moved away. Uh, then my mom and her dad got together and we met again when we were 11 we got along pretty well until she moved in full time. And then that's kind of when it clicked, like how much we had grown apart from one another or grown in different directions. And so we just Mm -hmm. became like enemies and we just fought. Um, Yeah. She, she had always been told by other people um, that I was trying to steal her dad or like me and my sister were trying to make her dad, our dad. (laughs) And I was like, jeez. You know, um, so she was kind of upset by that. Like, because when you're a kid, you're told that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. 
you're going to probably believe it, right? You don't have anything to counter that, yeah, that right. idea. Um, and like when I say that we fought, I, I mean this, like we physically fought regularly, even after we ended up sharing a room for a while. I remember one particular fight to this day. It's infamous in our family. It involved a pair of scissors and one of those pointy nail files. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, we didn't actually stab each other, but we were trying. <laughs> That's insane. Like, what would your parents have done if you came to the door and there was just like a nail file in your thigh? <laughs> I Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened at that point. It was... Oh, my God. Yeah. Um... But then when we were 16, we moved to uh, a house and we each mm -hmm. got our own room at that point. And I think even just that little bit of space allowed us to be able to walk away when we needed to. <laughs> but yeah. we became friends after that. And now I love her so much. She's Aww. she's one of my top five sisters. <laughs> <laughs> That is the safest answer. Uh, no, your we always say like, oh, you're my favorite sisters. sister. And when it's convenient for someone to be your favorite sister. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I don't have all mine like are this. They, they're always like the same things. I feel like I want to say that I'm like super chill. And usually the feuds that I get into like aren't my fault. Right. Like, that's, <laughs> But isn't know, that what nice, everybody says? <laughs> nice like pedestal to put myself on. But I can think of like a few like work related feuds and like one former roommate. I feel like um my views always start and end the same way. Usually it starts as like friendship. And then I find out something that I don't like about the person. Either they've talked behind my back, which was a work related one, or they were just the person who like made up like a lot of lies for like no reason, or they're like really culturally ignorant. And I'm just like, mm, no thanks. Like I'm, I'm good. I don't need to be friends with you anymore, but I won't say that. I'll just like pull myself back out of the situation. So like I'm kind of I'm the person who like if I feel like slighted by you and it's like not a misunderstanding, like I don't have a need to ever talk to you again. So you won't confront I'm, the person, you just like erase no, them. Because it, from existence. So, like, from exi yes, because there are certain things like if like and I mean you and I we've had our things mm -hmm. and I've been like, hey, let's sit down and have a conversation because I love you. And it's something that is clearly a misunderstanding. Right. But if you're just like, like the one example, the work one, you just like went behind my back to my boss and said that I said a thing that I did not say. There's no misunderstanding. You're a kind of person that I don't want to fuck with. And like, there's no need to like communicate with you anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'll just like, stop <laughs> which okay. is not i mean i realize like that's not the best but i'm never like just rude it's just like now we just talk about work things or now we just talk about roommate things like that's it and like people not knowing like the context like they might not know that i know that they've done something or that they've slighted me in some way so it's just like all of a sudden i'm like short i'm cordial but i'm short so like people will take that as like me being rude but i'm really just not spending energy on them anymore and that's usually how the typical the feud would like start but it's usually like very one-sided because like i no longer care about you and i think that might be like the only child in me like fighting is stressful i'm not doing it unless like i think i can actually like repair a friendship mm. like in all of these cases like it was not worth it and then the more i thought about this i like dug deeper and i was like oh there were feuds that i was in over dudes oh, and yes <laughs> i'm absolutely so embarrassed by that because like the women i actually liked but it was like well i can't be friendly with you because like you're taking attention away from me with this person. 
And that's so dumb. And like, instead of like fighting and bickering with like these women, I could have just been friends with them and not and like, wasted my time dude. on the guy. <laughs> yeah. And like looking back on it now, it's so dumb. It's so absolutely dumb how much like time and energy that I like exerted on this person. Mm-hmm. It's really dumb. Well, not saying names, but like, you know. <laughs> if you know you know yes (laughs) if you know you know and if you know you know i apologize for my behavior (laughs) me and you could have been good friends we have a lot in common well especially liking dumb guys (laughs) i think we'll talk about that a little bit as we dig further Mm -hmm. into the history of our episode female rivalry happens when a woman uses her power to keep another woman down This can be through mistreatment of the other woman or through unfair competition. But of course, it stems from an internalized sexism that has long been normalized in many spaces, especially at work or in other naturally competitive places. Sexism in the workplace may cause women to fight for positions or opportunities that have historically only been open to men or to very few women. It can also come in the form of competition over a male partner. But again, this is rooted in sexism and the idea that the other woman is the problem, not the man or men involved. And it frequently makes appearances in Hollywood and other pop culture contexts, which is what we'll primarily focus on today. But in the workplace, women have been known to internalize what is happening around them and blame themselves. This results in competition among female co-workers and the distancing of oneself from women who see themselves in competition with one another. So sexism is like the biggest thing holding women back. It's not just men who judge women more harshly when they speak. Women judge other women, too. Women, generally speaking, value healthy competition in the workplace, but a big factor in rivalries between women is the concept of the one seat at the table. That is, there's only room for one woman. That could be in the role of a superior or, in the case of Hollywood, one successful actress. So where does this concept of one seat at the table come from? Well, it comes from the idea that diversity is mandatory but not useful. When, of course, we know that the opposite is true and there's actually been studies on this. Uh, But, you know, hey, straight, white, cis men in power. Am I right? Mm -hmm. They debunked those studies. They're like, "Mm, no, sounds sounds wrong. (laughs) Yeah, that, that sounds unnatural. What? Anyway, what are the consequences of buying into this one seat at the table concept? A scarcity mindset, infighting and judging other women. This leads to women mistreating, underestimating, and distancing themselves from one another in order to increase their power and standing among men, all of which, ironically, actually holds women back. Know that this is not how it has to be. Seek out confident women who value other women, women who are not threatening to you, who appreciate you, and who want you to succeed. They do exist. Like, honestly, I feel that way about my department chair. She Mm -hmm. is that woman. She will go to bat for other women in our department and in the university in general. I mean, she is the only, at least in Weissman, I think in the whole college, she is the only black woman who is a full professor that seems insane for a cuny mm-hmm. well that's the thing cuny students are diverse mm, but cuny professorship yeah. is not you know yeah we have that problem at my school too they're working on it we saw a pie graph it's getting better <laughs> <laughs> oh geez it, it's funny because like i'm currently the only like white identifying 
full-time I faculty. I am currently white. And I was like, yes, <laughs> you are. <laughs> I'm currently the only full-time white faculty in my department, um, mm-hmm. which I think makes a lot of sense that we yes. should be hiring black and Latino professors to teach in a black and Latino studies department. But guess yes. what? They should be in other departments too. Right. We shouldn't just yeah. be the, the the home for all of the POC professors. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all. <laughs> but it's not just feuding doesn't just happen at work. Right. Mm-hmm. Now it happens on the battlefield, the battlefield of love. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so feuding over a man like this is super, super common. We've all done it. Maybe. I don't know. I've already admitted to it embarrassed about it um it's really really common you could probably think of many real life and fictional feuds over a man when a feud is labeled as a woman-on-woman feud the reasoning behind it is often assumed that it's about some form of jealousy over a man mm-hmm. in literature and the media this is often like a plot point right women are very infrequently seen as feuding over something like i don't know a, a business deal or some other gender neutral topic <laughs> There have even been studies about jealousy in women regarding their own attractiveness as compared to the attractiveness of other women that they see as competition for male partners in heterosexual pairings. The arguments and reasons for this type of jealousy range from biological to social and everywhere in between. There are actually a lot of studies out there, and it's really hard to weed through them all for a podcast like this. But just the fact that I I came across so many, I was like, I think we need to at least mention this. (laughs) So one thing that we found that connects the feuds to competition among women is the idea of competition without risking physical safety. To do this, the study Female Competition Causes Constraints, Content, and Context by Anne Campbell in the Journal of Sex Research suggests that women engage in acts that ostracize, stigmatize, and otherwise exclude others from social interactions. These choices lower the risk of physical confrontation, but instead inflict stress on the opponent and diminish or challenge their reputation and their social support. This is referred to as either indirect aggression or relational aggression. Okay, so it's me. (laughs) I am the queen of indirect aggression, I think. (laughs) Yeah, like hearing that, I'm like, wait, that's kind of what I do. But like, because I don't want to fight anybody. Right, but sometimes not fighting is, you know, you're still making a stance, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... If the other person is unaware, whether or not they should be aware, if they they're unaware. Be. They know. They know. Do they always? They should. Why? Are they, they mind should. readers? No, but if you're a shitty person, you know you're a shitty person. I don't think people do. Well, that's not my fault. <laughs> anyway. That's not my fault. Anyway, whether in real life or in fiction, we often see these tactics employed when there is a woman-on-woman feud related to a man, but not always, since sometimes women do resort to physical altercations while feuding with other women. So let's move on to talk about Hollywood and pop culture, right? Media often pits women against one another in movies, television shows, books, or even real-world celebrity gossip. In recent years, we have seen some moves away from this and more towards women supporting women, but that's not traditionally been the case. And it honestly, it still persists today in some media. So I have a bit of trivia. All right. Fun facts. Yes. Fun facts. Do you know when the first TV cat fight occurred? I don't know, but I feel like it's way back, way, way, way back when. 
way back in the day. So apparently it was on August 26, 1970, when ABC's male news anchor Howard K. Smith reported on the women's strike for equality. As a part of the segment, we meet a woman named Jackie Davison. She opposed the equality movement. She's great. Um, that's all good. We and love well. opposing equality. We love, you know what? <laughs> we love opinions. Good, bad. We love we love Jackie's. We fight for Jackie to have her shitty opinion. And her opinion is that we don't need equality. Yeah, look where but that anyway. got us. It got us with Marjorie Taylor Greene and fucking Listen. the other one, Bobert. Bobert. Oh my god. Anyway. Um, so anyway, so Jackie gets into a physical fight with another woman who is protesting, and this is all caught live on television. <sighs> The idea of the catfight or the female feud is especially persistent in celebrity news and tabloids and has been an ongoing issue in Hollywood for decades. But in in the world, it's honestly, it's been for centuries, right? It has been seen in pornographic clips from the 1950s and later in B-movies of the 1960s. Then we have the exploitation films of the 1970s. Women in prison films were apparently a subgenre of this. Very popular. Oh, yeah. Anyway, then we go on to the 1980s and we have soap opera fights. I'm sure we can think of those and we can find them on YouTube, too. I'm just picturing like big hair, shoulder pads and like slaps. 100 percent. Slaps. <laughs> uh, the primetime drama altercations of the 1990s. Think like Melrose Place or even Friends had some of those. Mm-hmm. Um, then the daytime talk shows of the 90s and the 2000s like Maury Povich and Jerry Springer. And we even have, like, reality TV, I think, is probably one of our biggest culprits of the, oh, the yeah. female feud uh, well into this century. You know, things with, the like, the real world, Survivor, The Bachelor, Jersey Shore. I mean, you name it, it's probably in there. Yeah. But, like, why? Because we love drama. Our culture seems to thrive off of it. Shows that pit women against women, whether fictional or real, tend to get higher ratings. If they make it, we watch it, and then they make more of it. It's a cycle. So, like we said, the media is like, they love it. They love the drama. They love a good cat fight. But you know who else loves it? Who? Capitalism, baby. You're Think right. of how many tabloids that you've seen trying to sell you a catty tale of why you should be Team Jen or Team Angelina. There are literally 11 different American versions of Real Housewives and 21 international adaptations. Mm-hmm. And there have been 27 seasons of The Bachelor and 17 seasons of Bad Girls Club. Right? Society loves to see women fight no matter the prize. And honestly, most of the time there is no prize. But long before Teresa was flipping tables, women were feuding. Let's go back to some famous feuds that didn't take place in front of a camera, but still had some pretty high stakes. All right. Mary, Queen of Scots and Queen Elizabeth. We're going way back. Queen Elizabeth I of England and Mary, Queen of Scots were two of the greatest, most legendary political rivals, even though they never even met. IRL. <laughs> <laughs> They were just mutuals. Since they were cousins, they had an idea to reunite England and Scotland under one throne and one family. They thought they would be stronger together, but the fight became over who would actually rule, who would be the head of state. Mm -hmm. So both of these women were very young when they came into power. When Elizabeth became queen, she was only 25 years old. When Mary took up her throne in Scotland, she was just 18. They're both vulnerable, inexperienced, and just trying to find their place in a male-dominated society. 
Elizabeth sets up her cousin with a British Earl from her political circle. What if his name was Earl? Earl Earl? <laughs> Earl the Earl. <laughs> so she sets him up. She sets the two of them up. So Elizabeth's planning and like hoping that Mary would get married, have a baby, and give up ruling. This backfired as Mary and her husband produced a male heir in 1566, only strengthening Mary's claim to the English crown. Elizabeth, as many of us already know, was the virgin queen. Yeah, right. Girl, please. Don't. You don't know. I don't know, but like, I know. Virginity is a concept anyway. Listen, I think the only reason she she had to be a virgin because she wasn't married, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so whether or not she was, I don't give a shit. Like, if you're going to get it, girl, get it. Besides, anyone who watches Doctor Who out there knows she was getting it with the doctor. Anyway. (laughs) No, but I mean, in all seriousness, that was like, she had to be labeled as the Virgin Queen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So since she was the Virgin Queen and uh, she had no intention of birthing an heir, Mary kind of had like, well, hey, you know, next in line, my kid. These two fought it out in letters over the years, which we all know is the quickest way to hate somebody. When you read what someone wrote, you can like project your own thoughts and your fears and your paranoia or even anger, even if that wasn't the author's intent. Yeah, we all do that with texts all the time, right? If mm-hmm. if I reach out and say like, oh, I'm running late and you're like, okay, that's fine. You could say, okay, that's fine. Or you could be like, okay, that's fine. <laughs> right? Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but like my feelings on the situation are going to make me decide how I read that text coming Mm -hmm. from you or whoever, right? In this case, Mary starts plotting on how to just kill Elizabeth and take it all. This is called conspiring to assassinate a queen and um, very much a crime. Yeah, Elizabeth basically had no choice but to execute Mary as it was the law. For more on this feud and some great acting, you should check out Mary Queen of Scots starring Margot Robbie, who we love on this podcast, and Sorcy Ronan, directed by Josie Rourke. All right, next up, Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield. These two writers first met in 1916 and quickly bonded over the joys and fears of being published and finding success. Woolf was the older of the two and had only one novel published. Mansfield was younger and had carved out more of a name for herself. Woolf and her husband had set up their own publishing house, the Hogarth Press. They convinced Mansfield to print with them. When the book came out, people weren't thrilled, but Wolf championed Mansfield's story. She was proud of her friend and would praise Mansfield's writing to anyone who would listen. The two spent visit after visit being each other's sounding boards and cheerleaders. When Mansfield's rheumatoid arthritis got so bad that she became housebound, Wolf came by with gifts. A freshly baked loaf of bread, flowers, plants, that sort of thing, just to brighten up the house. When Mansfield's rheumatoid arthritis got so bad that following doctor's orders, she headed to the Italian Riviera. I mean, I don't know who her doctor is, but like, do they take Aetna? Because I need that prescribed for me. (laughs) So while her bestie was gone, Wolf dove into her work and she started to get a fan base. Wolf was preparing for the publication of her second novel called Night and Day, and people were super excited for it. The book came out to much fanfare and it was a hit. But Wolf was kind of bummed she hadn't heard from Mansfield in like over six months, and she would have loved to celebrate with her friend. On the flip side, Mansfield's collection of short stories, Bliss, had been rejected by her publisher around the same time. Mansfield was isolated, and she just got her career damaging news, but she still didn't reach out to Wolf. 
back to Wolf. She's replying to fan letters and letters of praise from colleagues about her great book release when she comes across a hurtful review published in a literary journal called Athenium. It was Mansfield reviewing Wolf's book Night and Day. Mansfield had compared it to a ship returning from a perilous voyage with a curious absence of any scars. Ultimately, Mansfield ends the review by saying the novel makes us feel old and chill. That sounds really rude. <laughs> Almost a year later, Mansfield returned and Wolf set up a visit to discuss what had gone wrong. Mansfield kind of avoids it, but never apologizes. The two remain friends and very critical writing rivals. So, like, is this the first example of frenemies? Maybe, but it also sounds like the an example of, like, could they not just communicate? Like, why yeah. Why are they not just able to talk about it? Like, maybe Mansfield was going through some shit. I don't know. Maybe. But, like, admit to it. But, of course, it's not like she could just go get some therapy. <laughs> and 19, what, 1916 when they met? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They would have been like, I don't know, just sit on the French Riviera for a little bit longer. <laughs> Right. So let's talk about Sophia Loren and another Mansfield. Wait, is it the same? Yeah. No relation. No relation. But that's funny. Jane Mansfield. So in April 1957, the Italian actress Sophia Loren had a party thrown in her honor by Paramount Pictures. It was their way of welcoming her to Hollywood. Loren was a rising star in Europe and looking to have the same success in America. Around this same time, actress Jane Mansfield was being sold as 20th, 20th Century Fox's Blonde Bombshell. She had been in a few films on Broadway and was a playmate of the month. Fox was looking to get her as much press as possible. According to Loren, Mansfield was the last person to arrive at the party. She walked in and took a seat at Loren's table. Mansfield was wearing a backless satin dress with a very deep plunging neckline. Loren gives Mansfield the side eye and a photo is taken and history is made. The press accused Mansfield of trying to steal the spotlight. She is to blame, even though 20th Century Fox had been known to cast her in PR stunts before. There doesn't seem to be much more than this event and this photo, but the two were labeled as enemies because of it. When Loren was asked about the photo years later, she said, Look at the picture. Where are my eyes? I'm staring at her nipples because I'm afraid they're about to come onto my plate. In my face, you can see the fear. I'm so frightened that everything in her dress is going to blow boom and spill out all over the table. Okay, do it again. (laughs) Do it again in an Italian accent. No. (laughs) Look at the picture. Where are my eyes? I'm staring at her nipples. I found it on on, um, TikTok. I'll share it because it's she's got this Italian accent. It's so funny to be like, the nipples on my plate. (laughs) It's just funny. (laughs) Anyway, so the media used this photo to insinuate that Lauren was boring, she was jealous, she was a prude, and that Mansfield was an attention-seeking dumb blonde. Neither were true, and guess what? Both are getting little reputation episodes, so we can learn more. Fun fact, Jane Mansfield had a really rich and like crazy career and died tragically. For those that don't know, her daughter is Mariska Hargitay of Law & Order SVU fame and also the love of my life. All right, next up, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Now, the rivalry between these two actresses, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, was a decades-long battle. It was fueled by professional and personal resentments and an industry that loves a good catfight. The feud began in 1933. Crawford's team announced that she was set to divorce her husband. This announcement came on the same day that Davis's team, Warner Brothers, had planned an elaborate publicity campaign announcing Davis's new film. 
this film would be the first to feature her name above the title. This was a super huge deal. Mm-hmm. But the news of Crawford's divorce dominated the papers, causing the movie to flop. So I think that it's really important to remember here, like, how limited the news was back then. Like, there wasn't a Twitter, there wasn't Instagram. You got your news via the radio or the paper or just, like, someone yelling it on the streets, right? <laughs> so if neither, if neither of those things were talking about you, you just weren't in the know. Mm-hmm. In 1935, the feud really got going when Davis was filming a movie called Dangerous, where she fell in love with her co-star, Francho Tone. Davis said, I fell in love with Francho professionally and privately. Everything about him reflected his elegance from his name to his manners. Unfortunately for Davis, he was already in love and was planning to propose. Do you want to like take a stab at who his future fiance was? Ooh, ooh, ooh. Was it Joan Crawford? Ding, 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 ding. Joan Crawford would be correct. Davis won an Oscar for her role in that film, and Crawford got married, but neither got over it. Over the years, the two poked each other via the tabloids, picked up and turned down roles meant for one another, and even played each other in films. For example, The Star was a romantic drama written by Crawford's former longtime friend, Catherine Albert. Davis was cast in the lead role of a washed-up actress clinging desperately to her fading star power. To everyone, this was a thinly veiled depiction of Crawford. In 1962, Crawford convinced Davis to star in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane with her. Oh, lovely. Good idea. Call up your frenemy, your enemy, your feud, and say, let's be in a movie together. So this film is a psychological horror story about a disabled former actress played by Crawford who's being terrorized by her jealous and deranged sister played by Davis. So, like, this movie is bonkers and amazing like you should absolutely see it the two are so talented and their real life feud really helped like you could see like the level of discontent and just like rage they have for each other it's it's kind of a perfect film the set of whatever happened to baby jane was a nightmare there were verbal and physical fights and so much pettiness in one report during a scene in which davis had to drag crawford out of bed and across the room apparently crawford made herself as heavy as possible by wearing a weightlifter's belt knowing that Davis had back problems. And she doubled down on this by ruining several takes, forcing Davis to drag her around for days. I aspire to this level of petty. I think that's so amazing. She's like, you got back problems? They're about to get worse. Where's my weightlifter's balance? <laughs> like, that seems so insane. It but seems I love insane, it. but like, I mean, I would love it in a fictional setting, but like in real life, like, come on, ladies. Let's get over it. People are trying to make a production here, but like, I just, I think it's so funny. Um, So the premise behind Ryan Murphy's series, Feud, comes from these two ladies and the filming of this exact movie. I think it's on Hulu. I've been meaning to watch it forever. I've heard only very good things about it. So maybe I'll watch it and come back and report. So let's fast forward now to more modern times. (laughs) That's like a fast forward. Yeah, yeah, I got that. Okay, so let's talk about maybe like my favorite one of these, which I know we're not supposed to be picking favorites about anything, but yeah, Kim I feel Cattrall, like this is a, this is a a weird thing to pick a favorite on since like the idea of women feuding I is know. something we're not in support of, but like, but but we did say that like we like the mess, not we, but like society. Sometimes you like the mess, and you like the feeling of someone being vindicated. I get stressed when I see people feuding and I like mm. shut it down, uh, like shut myself down 
away from it because mm. I don't want to be engaged in any capacity. I, I, Fair. I don't like that. But this like is that. like Ugh. celebrity gossip. So I'm definitely never going to be – no one's ever going to ask my opinion. So like this one is Kim Cattrall versus Sarah Jessica Parker. Neither one of them are going to uh, be like, Kim, what do you think? But and, if they did – And they're not going to be guests on Big Reputations. <laughs> I, we don't even do guests, but I mean, I guess we could make an exception for Kim Cattrall or Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Let, let them hear this part first. So we learned about this feud way, way later, mostly due to someone who was trying to sell a book. According to a man named Clifford Strait, the real life inspiration behind the show, behind the show's character, Stanford, the feud started because, in his words, Cattrall was a natural comedian, a scene stealer in the best possible way. The camera went right to her. Allegedly, this rubbed the lead of the show, Sarah Jessica Parker, the wrong way. Straight claims that Parker, Cynthia Nixon, and Kristen Davis supposedly formed a clique, leaving Cottrell out. Sex and the City premiered in 1998 and ran until 2004. After six seasons, it was still very popular, leaving people wondering why it was ending. Well, in 2004, Cottrell was asked if money was a factor in the series finale of the very successful show. She stated, I felt after six years, it was time for all of us to participate in the financial windfall of sex in the city. She said, when they didn't seem keen on that, I thought it was time to move on. Sarah Jessica Parker, who played the lead, Carrie Bradshaw, was making $3.2 million per episode, while her co-stars Cynthia Nixon, Kristen Davis, and Kim Cattrall were making $350,000 per episode. After Parker asked for and received a producer credit, she started to make more money. This caused Cottrell to reportedly negotiate for a higher salary, which everyone hated. She wasn't the lead. She didn't have a right to do this in some people's opinions. Nixon and Davis were fine with their pay. Why did Cottrell think that she was entitled to more? Crew members noted that the women wouldn't even sit with Cottrell at lunch anymore, as it was perceived that she was trying to steal the spotlight from Parker. The division was apparent on set and off. When the cast headed for Atlantic City, New Jersey to film an episode, Parker rented a house for the three actresses and didn't extend an invite to Cottrell. In the beginning, the ostracizing was manageable as the show's creator and producer, Darren Starr, was a huge fan of Cottrell and the two formed a group of their own. But after two seasons, he left the show and and Cottrell was on her own. The rift started to be noticed by the public when at the 2004 Emmy Awards, Parker, Nixon and Davis all sat together while Cottrell sat by herself. In response, Cottrell said, are we the best of friends? No, we're professional actresses. We have our own separate lives. While Cottrell has always taken the honest yet vague route to answering questions about feud rumors, Parker usually put a positive spin and denied rumors. In the same report about the Emmys, Parker said, honestly, we're all friends and I wish I saw more of Kim. When Parker was asked about the producer credit, she said, Kim mentioned money and no one should vilify her for it. People made a decision that we had vilified her. So for years, the cast is being asked about their level of friendship and their personal sex lives in every interview, and they're tired of it. Parker did an interview with Time Magazine where she once again addressed the rumors. She said, They just didn't do it to the Sopranos guys. It was so strange to me and upsetting. But nobody asked those questions about shows with men. Isn't that interesting? I mean, she has a point. Like, do you think anybody was worried if James Gandolfini was, like, eating lunch with Michael Imperioli? Like... I don't think that anybody gave a shit because it wasn't, you know, the catty catness of a cat fight. Mm -hmm. 
So despite all of this, most of the cast wanted to make a movie. For Cottrell, it was about timing. She was going through a really painful public divorce. The series had just come to an end, and her father had been diagnosed with dementia. She needed to work on her real family now that she had the free time. But the rumor mill said that she was holding out for more money. Four years after the show wrapped, the movie was released in 2008. It went well, Cottrell said, in some ways I'm glad we waited. The script and the experience of making the movie was the best possible reunion. The tabloid spung the narrative that there was fighting about wardrobe options, call times, and that Parker and Cottrell refused to speak to each other throughout the whole movie. In an interview with Cottrell, she said, I think Sarah was right. People don't want to believe that we get along. They have too much invested in the idea of two strong, successful women fighting. It makes for juicy gossip and copy. The truth of us getting along and happily doing our jobs together is nowhere near as newsworthy. By the time the second movie came along, Parker and Cottrell were a united front against any fighting on set. They both released statements that things were fine. So this movie wasn't great, but the team wanted to do a third. Everybody was down, minus Cottrell. She had played Samantha for years and was ready to put her to bed, unless the writers are willing to make sure that her character was treated well. And this was something that they couldn't promise her. The writing and storylines for her character got a little wonky over the years. Between the show and the movies, the other women constantly slut-shamed Samantha. They judged her for gaining weight. She also got cancer and had to shave her head. A lot of the humor in the show was at Cottrell's expense, and she was over it. The press reported this as Cottrell holding up production due to demands, quote-unquote. The Daily Mail said Warner Brothers refused to meet her demands and they had to cancel production as the company decided it would not be fair to fans to produce a movie with only three of the four main characters. Cottrell denies the rumors of any demands. She says, the answer was always no. I never asked for any money. I never asked for any projects. To be thought of as some kind of diva is ridiculous. Cottrell insisted that she would support the women going on without her, but they felt slighted and took to the press about it. Parker confirmed to Extra TV that there would be no sex in the City 3. It's over. We're not doing it. I'm disappointed. We had this beautiful, funny, heartbreaking, joyful, very relatable script and story. It's not just disappointing that we don't get to tell the story and have the experience, but I think more so for that audience that has been so vocal about wanting another movie. Davis followed up by saying... It is true that we're not going to be able to make a third film. I wish that we could have made the final chapter on our own terms to complete the stories of our characters. It's deeply frustrating not to be able to share that chapter with all of you. So the press, me, this Kim, and Kim Cattrall all saw this as a clear blame job. They weren't moving forward with it, and it was all Kim's fault. She didn't take this lying down. Kim Cattrall told Pierce Morgan that she was cool with her co-stars making a third flick without her. She also confessed that she and the others had never been friends, and that was okay. Years later, Parker appeared on Watch What Happens Live on Bravo, where she was asked how she felt about Cattrall's comments. Parker said, I was heartbroken. She said that I found it very upsetting because it's not the way that I recall our experience. The two do seem to recall things very differently. Cottrell has tried to distance herself from the drama, while Parker believes it's her right to speak her truth. The two were quiet until Cottrell's brother was found dead and Parker started condolences via social media. Cottrell wrote on her Instagram, My mom asked me today, when will that, at Sarah Jessica Parker, that hypocrite, leave you alone? Your continuous reaching out is a painful reminder of how cruel you really were then and now. 
She followed it up by saying, let me make this very, and very is in all caps, clear. If I haven't already, you are not my family. You are not my friend, Cottrell wrote. So I'm writing to tell you one last time to stop exploiting our tragedy in order to restore your nice girl persona. Parker doubled down with tweets about how she cared about Cottrell and how heartbreaking it all was. Once the cast of Sex in the City started to film the reboot titled And Just Like That, the whole mess got stirred up again. Cottrell didn't speak of the show publicly. The most we can assume is from tweets that she has liked. But the new show references her character over and over. Some say it's to honor her character. Others call it bullying. So I was a huge, huge fan of Sex in the City. Like... It's too far away. I'll, I'll take a picture of my, I have like the velvet box set DVDs, which I don't even know how I would watch at this point. But like, I was a really, really huge fan. So I watched the first season of the reboot and it was weird because, again, we're not supposed to pick sides, but like, I think I'm team Cottrell because of the, uh, what did we call it? Not passive aggressive, but like, what would we just, we just named that term. Mm-hmm. I can't What remember. was it called? You can't remember. I can't remember either. Rewind back. Listen to it. I think I'm the same way. I'm like, well, you've slighted me, so we're just going to work together professionally, and, like, that's it. And, like, Sarah Jessica Parker, like, wouldn't shut up about it. And even, like, on this show, watching the reboot, they, of course, have to address our character not being there at least once, but, like, they kept it up. Like, every few episodes, they would bring up her character. And it was just, like, weird at some point, because it was, like, well, now we have to say, like, does Kim Cattrall, what does she think about this? Are they trying to get her to come back on the show? Are they just, like, egging her on? Like, it was it was weird how much they referenced her after she expressed that she did not want to be on the show anymore. Hmm. Like, they could have just been like, yeah, Sam moved to France and we don't see her anymore. And it would have been the end of it. But, like, they kept bringing her up and it was weird. It yeah. was pokey. Okay. Well, let's move on to another couple of women. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie. When Brad Pitt ended his marriage with Jennifer Aniston in 2005, he entered a relationship with Jolie. He launched at this time what would become one of the most potent and profitable tabloid narratives of all time. So let's backtrack just a little bit. So Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt had been married for seven ye- had been together for seven years and married for five. When Brad was cast in the film Mr. and Mrs. Smith, the film had him opposite Angelina Jolie. While they both denied rumors initially, um, they both later admitted that that is where they met and fell in love on the set of that film. Pitt and Aniston divorced in 2005. Pitt and Jolie started dating in 2005. As the divorce progressed, onlookers took sides. Team Aniston and Team Jolie shirts were made and sold, and you can still get them on eBay. Yeah, that's weird. So since people involved in this quote-unquote love triangle were very private. The tabloids had to get creative with their headlines. Some of them were Angie and Jen, explosive face-to-face showdown. Jen shows up at Brad and Angelina's house demanding her man back. Jen finally speaks, I still love Brad. Angelina finally speaks, stop calling Brad. While this feud took place almost 100% in the press, it had long-lasting effects for both women. In the article, Brad Pitt was the only winner of the Aniston Jolie tabloid battle, written by Constance Grady. Grady speaks of those effects, saying, Aniston, childless and unmarried with her biggest hit fading into the past, was painted as the loser, the spinster, poor, pathetic Jen. The tabloids basically said, don't be Jen. Don't put your career first. Make your husband happy or he will leave. 
Never mind that Jen wasn't avoiding motherhood. We later learned that she cannot have children, but like it wasn't our business then or now to be worried about. As for Angelina Jolie, Grady said, Angelina Jolie was another story altogether. For years, she had been in many ways the Mary Magdalene to Aniston's Virgin Mary, a wild child who seemed to be all about sex appeal and taboo breaking. Julie would be, and if you ask my mom, still is, known for being a husband stealer and a homewrecker. All while Brad's just a dude who was in love? Yeah. What, what could he do with both these beautiful women? How could he help himself? Yeah, it was definitely all her fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, your mom and I are in a fight now. Can't fight with <laughs> Roe v. No, I'm just kidding. No, my mom, <laughs> I told my mom I was doing this, and she's like, oh, who are you doing? And I was like, oh, like Angelina Jolie and Jennifer Aniston, and she's like... I like Angelina Jolie, but like she's a homewrecker. And I'm like, Mom, what's the last thing you saw her in? And she's like, That Tomb Raider movie. <laughs> like, Mom, stop. Like, that was so long ago. Like, you're holding this like tiny grudge. But like, that's what happens. Like, it's people happens. hear a thing and then they just like run with that thing. I'm like, Oh, you're terrible. And Maybe like, we should cover Angelina. I don't know. Unless we are one of those mm. two women, we never really know. That's the thing about this. Like, they were all so, they met once before everything happened they're all so private Mm -hmm. but even going back to any of these examples right like any of them we've even talked about like sarah jessica parker and kim cottrell Mm -hmm. making specific statements that maybe they were contradictory to statements they later made or Mm -hmm. previously made it's like a lot of it is for press a lot of it is for their own pr kind of thing yeah yeah anyway Speaking of PR and press, let's talk about Taylor Swift and Katy Perry. Okay. So these two multi-Grammy award-winning ladies, um, they have a few that started over backup dancers. Yes, backup dancers. Three of Perry's California Dreams tour dancers were offered spots on Swift's Red Tour. However, these dancers left before Swift's tour ended to join Perry on her Prismatic Tour. This incident is the root cause of Swift and Perry's feud. So now you're thinking, okay, like, why did this escalate to, like, this huge feud? So, like Taylor does, she wrote a song about something that was bothering her. Swift told Rolling Stone, Bad Blood was about another female pop star and a business issue. She was very candid, saying she basically tried to sabotage my entire arena tour. She tried to hire a bunch of people out from underneath me. As a response, Perry tweeted, Watch out for the Regina George in sheep's clothing. We all know we love Regina George anyway. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The two have been throwing petty jabs back and forth for years, mostly subtweets and alleged diss tracks. Swish Swish is supposed to be in response to bad blood. While doing press for an upcoming album, Perry was on an episode of Carpool Karaoke. Perry opened up about the feud saying, yes, there's a situation between her and Swift. And yes, it's about backup dancers. Perry said that she tried to talk to Swift about the incident, but Swift ignored ignored her and instead chose to write a song. Katy Perry insisted that Taylor Swift's team was trying to bury her. She was trying to ruin, they were trying to ruin her career and the first hit was Bad Blood. It was a public attempt to assassinate her character. Perry says that this was just the beginning. So way back in 2014, Swift removed her entire catalog from the streaming site Spotify. Anybody remember that? I do. Uh, I was I was sad that day. I think that was the day Sean became a Taylor Swift fan. <laughs> he was proud of her for standing up for it, right? Because yeah. she felt that they didn't value her art the way that 
they were paying artists and honestly the way they continue to pay artists is mm -hmm. abysmal but you need a big name like taylor swift to have any sort of impact on that the move was to bring light to how she felt about her own music as well as that of her musical colleagues but eventually a deal was worked out and on june 9th 2017 swift's full catalog returned to the platform the same day perry's fifth album was released Sounds like the Joan Crawford. Yeah, the announcing <laughs> your divorce on the day I'm announcing my movie. Yeah, it does. Perry had been building up buzz for months. And just like that, Swift seemingly stole the spotlight for her catalog. So was it a coincidence or was it sabotage? I was one of those people who streamed nothing but Taylor Swift that day. I had no clue Perry even had an album out and I still haven't heard it to this day. All the banner info on Spotify that day was dedicated to Swift. I remember it was like, we the return of Taylor Swift. And I was like, oh, holy crap. I haven't listened to this in such a long time. All I'm doing now is listening to Taylor Swift. I'm like, all day, that's what I did, like, at work. Mm. In interview after interview, Perry says the feud will end when Swift apologizes. Years go by, and in May of 2018, Perry sends Swift a literal olive branch. Really? Like, from a, a tree? Yeah, like... Uh, there's pictures of it. I'll post it. Okay. That's a weird thing to get in the mail. <laughs> I don't know. Like she left it like she was at a like a concert and she left it backstage. Still weird. But I mean, that's, that's still weird. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, Swift tweets her thanks. And a year later, she sends Perry homemade cookies with peace at last written in frosting. What? <laughs> Just talk to each other, women. Just talk to each other. I mean, I well, love so, cookies. I do love cookies, yeah. but let's have a conversation. <laughs> Taylor Swift is like a baker. Like, she bakes a lot, apparently. So right. I guess that was her way of being like, here's love. I would have rather like a jar of olives than a literal olive branch because I doubt there were actual olives on it. I hate olives. <laughs> Ugh, I forgot. That's your biggest flaw. No. How much you hate olives? <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Are you taking I have yourself down? Flaws. <laughs> I have bigger flaws than my olive. I love olives so much. I'm going to find some olives to eat for dinner. <clears throat> so in 2019, Perry appeared in the video for Taylor Swift's single, You Need to Calm Down. One was dressed as a burger and the other one was dressed as fries, stating the beef is now over. The two are now on good terms for now. <laughs> so I'm going to put my own two cents into this. I feel like it wasn't... It didn't make good PR sense for Katy Perry to keep up this feud because Taylor Swift is way more successful than her. And I felt like the olive branch was like, listen, I I give up whatever this is with us. Like, I will be the one to apologize because Katy Perry was all over talking about how she wasn't going to apologize first. She had nothing to apologize for. But all of a sudden, she's the one apologizing. I feel like her team was like, make this right. Maybe she grew. <laughs> Maybe, but also I don't know. I feel like I feel like a lot of this was for our benefit, like for the for the press's benefit. Like, look, we're best friends now. I sent her cookies and she sent me an olive branch. We're cool now. Okay. I don't know. It doesn't feel genuine. It feels like Katy Perry's team was like, you need to make this right before you have another album that flops because like that album did not do well. And I read multiple sources online that, uh, like, they say it's because Taylor dropped her whole catalog that day. All right. Well, I know. moving on. Tyra Banks and Naomi Campbell. 
The feud between these two literal supermodels began when Banks said Campbell, whom she once idolized as a black woman trying to break into the modeling profession, wasn't kind towards her when she was first starting out in the industry. Tyra scored her first major modeling contract during Paris Fashion Week in the early 90s. When Banks broke into the business, she did really, really well, causing comparisons to the only other black model. A reporter was quoted as saying, oh, look out, Naomi Campbell. Here comes Tyra Banks. So Naomi Campbell, you better sit your butt down. Because, you know, everyone knows there can only be one. Yeah, and I mean, in the 90s, probably. I mean, kind of But that's now. The, that's the bullshit yes. of it all. And all of that is it coming is. from the men in power. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The comparison got to Campbell, and when she got the chance to meet Banks, she wasn't very welcoming. Campbell allegedly did what she could to have Banks turned away from events and parties that she would also be attending. In another incident, Naomi allegedly told Tyra, you will never be me, so don't think you can be me. Naomi denied the accusation, but also added that she didn't know herself in her 20s. She was surrounded by editors, photographers, publicists, hairstyles, makeup artists, all of them who filled her head with theories that the new girl was out to steal her job. Yeah. Years later, Banks asked Campbell to come on her show to discuss the feud and bury the hatchet. Minus a few Twitter flare-ups, the two have been cordial ever since. So let's talk about people who have not been cordial ever since. That would be Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. So these two met at a super young age. They were cast in Disney's all-new Mickey Mouse Club in 1993. These two have been pitted against each other since the day they met. One was 11 and one was 12, and these child stars were constantly told that they needed to be better than the next performer, right? Like you do. Of course. Of course. Well, the two girls were super different, with Spears from Louisiana and Aguilera born and raised in New York City. They both battled for solos and screen time. By the time the 90s hit, they were both ready for the music scene. Spears arrived first in 1998 with Baby One More Time followed by Aguilera's debut, Genie in a Bottle, in 1999. This started the comparisons, with Spears as the good Southern Belle and Aguilera as the city-wise bad girl. It seemed these two played it up a bit, but the real-life feud didn't start until 2003, during their now infamous MTV Music Video Award performance with Madonna. If you're too young or you just don't remember, Madonna ended the performance by kissing both Spears and Aguilera on stage. However, the camera cut to Justin Timberlake for a reaction shot. He was Spears' ex. Most people missed the Christina kiss, and the story in all the papers the next day barely even mentioned her. Britney got all the shine, and Christina was just an afterthought. Which, like, again, this is one of those instances where it's not Spears' fault that this happened, yeah. but... The, the tabloids want to make drama. And, and the two battled it out in the tabloids for years. In 2004, Aguilera criticized Spears' upcoming wedding to Kevin Federline and mocked her engagement ring. It looks like she got it at QVC, she said to Us Weekly, and added, I know, Brittany, she's not trailer trash, but she sure acts that way. Yikes. That's such like a backhanded, like, she's better than trailer trash. I don't know why she's acting like it right now, but, like, she's not trailer trash. That's such, like, it's not even a backhanded compliment. No. Like, it's just such a weirdly phrased insult. Yeah. So, Brittany retaliated by making comments on Aguilera's fluctuating weight. Ah! <laughs> Rage. <laughs> Spears then further took offense when Aguilera went on tour with her ex Justin Timberlake. They also made an album called Justin and Christina. It was released to promote the Justified and Strip tour. So I was supposed to go to this tour. And I was supposed to go see them in Atlantic City because 
tickets were cheaper in Atlantic City, and my mom was willing to, like, take the bus there, but, like, pay cheaper than, like, in Madison Square Garden. So I don't know how we got notified, because, like, this was early 2000s. I don't know if she got, like, a phone call or something, but we are like, on the bus. And she was like, the concert's not happening. And I'm just like, wait, what do you even mean? What do you mean? So the lights fell and collapsed the stage. So, like, we all just, like, went to the arena anyway. Like, it was on the boardwalk, and it was just like, well, like, what do we do now? And I remember there was, like, a news crew there, and there was this young girl. She had, like, pigtails. And like these like huge braces, like um, what is that movie? Finding Nemo. That's what that, I was thinking. Character. Of. <laughs> yes, just these massive braces, and the camera's on her, and she's just weeping, and she just goes, Justin, and it just tears, and that was the whole soundbite. I don't know what else they even asked her, but I remember laughing and then being like, Well, what do we do now? And we went and we played mini golf, and then we took the bus back home because there was nothing else to be done. And that, my friends, is why you spend the extra money to go see it at MSG. <laughs> you do when you don't, because kidding. it was like we had like floor seats in Jersey, and like MSG would have been like nosebleed, yeah. I don't know. I'm also seeing like Janet Jackson in Pennsylvania because the seats were half the price of New York City. And again, I have floor seats. Mm -hmm. So like sometimes it's worth the travel. Hopefully the lights don't collapse. Knocks on wood. In 2008, Aguilera expressed remorse for comments she had made at Spears' expense, pointing out the media's need for them to feud, making her forget that they were actually friends at that point in time. In response, Spears wrote a blog post saying she would love to be close with Christina again. Aguilera also spoke about the rivalry in a 2018 Cosmopolitan profile. She said, It's hard to hear yourself being called names. I remember being hurt by these commercials on MTV, pitting Britney as the good girl and me as the bad girl. The two seemed fine, with Aguilera sending virtual support via Instagram. She expressed her frustration on Spears' behalf for the conservatorship that Spears had been trapped under. But in August of 2022, Spears responded with a very cryptic and shady post. We're going to read it because it's a little strange and uh, it kind of makes you wonder about the state that she was in at the time she wrote it. Yeah. It says, well, someone was singing about what a little girl wants. I mean, maybe a pink cloud told me either way in conjunction to most performers who praise their roots and father's background, even if he abused them, I would raise a question of beautiful white lies which years to make no waves with me, even when I read heart. Either way, are we able to show this little girl how much we care? So I think that the pink clouds is pink because pink and Christina have their own feud that we don't have time to get into today. Um, but the rest is really weird. Christina has been very open about how her father was abusive when she was younger, but she also has praised like him for her Hispanic roots. So I don't know if, if that's what she this was is getting. Shade. Yeah. It feels like it. Yeah. It feels like that's what she was getting at, but also like she was not in a good place herself, so it might be yes. nothing really specific. Yeah. But in September of 2022, Spears kind of doubled down on this by fat shaming Aguilera. Spears stated, I mean, if I had Christina Aguilera's dancers, I would have looked extremely small. I mean, why not talk about it? She wrote in what seems to be in what was seemingly an insult to Aguilera's body. Spears claims that she was just quoting Ronnie Dangerfield, 
His quote is, I found that there was one way to look thin, hang out with fat people. Yikes. What? Again, why are we talking about people's bodies? Let's leave that out of yeah. the conversation, please. Also, I don't think that that's a good excuse to be like, oh, I wasn't making fun of her. I was just pointing out like this person's joke. And it's like, well, a joke is terrible. Yes. Aguilera unfollowed Spears. And that's the last we heard of this feud. This next feud, which I debated if, like, we want to call it a feud or not. But, like, let's let's dig in. Let's let the people decide. Okay. So it's Catherine Heigl versus Shonda Rhimes. Catherine Heigl was the one of the biggest breakout stars of Grey's Anatomy, the ABC medical drama that became a hit right out of the gate in 2005. The show is still on, and, like, I think it may never die. Mm-hmm. It's been on forever. Heigl played... Dr. Isabel Izzy Stevens. She was a fan favorite. Her character was relatable and really honest. In 2007, Heigl was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award. Instead of being excited, she withdrew her name from consideration, stating that I do not feel that I was given the material this season to warrant a nomination. So I have such a question. Like, I watched the show while this was happening, and I just don't know why you would do this. Like, as someone who was watching, I don't think that that was a true statement. I think her character had, like, a really good storyline. It was interesting, and it definitely showed her acting range. But even if you hated every line that you had been given and the direction, like, why not just take the nomination anyway? Like, why insult everyone around you by saying that, like, the cal- the work wasn't up to the caliber of deserving a, a daytime Emmy. Yeah, I mean, it would be one thing Annie. to say, like, I don't feel like I perform the material as well as they're saying. It's about phrasing, uh-huh. right? This yes. this points the blame at the, the writers and the directors more, more specifically. Yeah. So clearly this put a strain on the relationship between Heigl and the creator and showrunner Shonda Rhimes. Three whole years later, Heigl left the show. Rhymes wrote her out of the show, leaving the door open for her to come back. Rhymes, who was the one who did the writing, has been pretty quiet about the whole thing. She did an interview with Oprah, in which Oprah asked if the Emmy withdrawal stung. Rhymes responded, Yeah, on some level it stung, and on some level I was not surprised. Then, quoting Maya Angelou, she added, When people show you who they are, believe them. Both went their separate ways, Catherine to some movie roles and to enter motherhood, and rhymes to more shows like Inventing Anna, How to Get Away with Murder, Scandal, and Bridgerton. Heigl later went on the record with Entertainment Weekly, noting that she thought that she was doing the right thing at the time by taking herself out of the running. She did regret how she handled the matter publicly, stating, I could have more gracefully said that without going into private work matter. It was between me and the writers. I ambushed them, and it wasn't very nice or fair. I agree. And I would just like to point out, when Shonda Rhimes put this show out, she didn't put her name on it for, like, the first five years because she was, like, a black showrunner with a show on ABC. And I feel like Katherine Heigl then saying, hey, this black lady wrote these lines for me, and I don't think that they're worth anything. This might not have been something that Katherine Heigl thought about, like, like, sometimes most white women don't think about their actions when it comes to, like, race relations like this. Mm-hmm. But she could have really, like, done in Shonda's career because she was just starting out. And, like, she didn't even put her name on her own show until it was a certified hit. Like, until it had, like, a certain number of watchers and people loved it. Then it was like, this is my show. Mm-hmm. Because, like, you yeah. you don't get a lot of chances as a black creator. And this really could have done a lot of damage to her career. And I don't think that's something that Catherine thought about and this comes up as a feud like when i looked up like most famous feuds this was on a lot of top 10 lists interesting and i don't 
consider it a feud because it does seem very one-sided. Mm-hmm. But the idea that, like, women are, like, inherently bitchy, right? So, like, this has to be a feud, even though Shonda Rhimes wrote her out of the show, respectively. Years later, they wrote, like, another character out, and that character went to go live with, like, Izzy's character. So, like, they didn't kill her. They didn't, you know, yeah. there's been no bad blood. She's never said anything negative about her. But this is a feud. Of course. In, in like, the, the eyes of Hollywood. And it shouldn't be. Well, let's talk about a couple other black creators. Cardi B and Nicki Minaj. Now, this feud started in early 2017 when Cardi B released the song Bodek Yellow. Cardi wasn't new to the scene, but she was new to having hits. She had been making mixtapes for years, so people knew of her, but now people were comparing her success to Nicki Minaj. Nicki was the most well-known female rapper at the time. She was even doing features. Even my mom knew who she was. My mom doesn't know anybody, (laughs) except for Angelina Jolie. In May of 2017, Nicki allegedly dissed Cardi's then-boyfriend Offset on the song Swish Swish featuring Katy Perry. July 2017, Nikki was filmed dancing to Cardi's track Bodak Yellow in a nightclub, showing support, trying to bury the rumors of a feud. In 2018, the two even did a song together. The track was called Motorsport, and it featured Cardi B, Migos, and Nicki Minaj. Uh, the piece didn't last very long, because just a few weeks later, Nikki rapped, Little bitch, I heard these labels trying to make another me on a track called No Flag. The public considered this a jab at Cardi as she, as it was just days after Cardi signed a record deal with Atlantic. The industry called Cardi the new Nikki, and the real Nikki took offense. While doing press for her debut album, Cardi addresses the issue by saying, I just feel like it's really internet made up. I don't really have time for that. If you're not fucking my man or you're not taking my money from me, if you're not stopping my money, then I don't really give a fuck about you. She added, I spoke to her before, in person, so I always say I don't want anybody sneak dissing me. If it's something we can talk it out, then we can talk it out. Because if it's not always rah-rah this or rah-rah that. I need to hear you say sneak dissing all over. (laughs) Like, that's going to be my ringtone. It's just you going, sneak, I don't want anybody sneak dissing. I love it. So the fighting between these two seemed to mostly happen online until the night of Harper's Bazaar Party held for New York Fashion Week. According to reports in TMZ, Cardi took off one of her red heels and threw it at Nikki. She missed, but the gauntlet was thrown. A lot of the fighting these two do happens on songs or via fans in the comment sections. Both have very devoted fan bases that will come to the defense of their chosen queen when needed. Nikki also has a platform in Queen Radio, which is her own music show hosted by Apple. Cardi uses Instagram Live to reach out to her fans. After a lengthy episode of Queen Radio, Cardi took to Instagram to accuse Nikki of lying about everything from endorsement deals and musical collaborations to false claims of Cardi using payola. So payola is basically like the practice of bribing or paying someone to promote your music. Nikki allegedly accused Cardi of sleeping with DJs to get her music played. But Nikki never directly says these things. She just implies them. Mm Mm-hmm. The pair called a temporary truce online, but between raps being misconstrued and fans hyping up the drama, it might never end. Both are mothers now and have switched their focus either to kids, music projects, or other female rappers. So let's get to our final feud, which is an Olympic level feud. This one is between Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. I remember this. I don't know if you do, because you were probably young. I was, but I was very into ice skating. Have we talked about this? How much I love ice skating. So once again, 
Margot Robbie does a better job of telling this story than we can. Margot Robbie's all over this episode. Um, she stars as Tanya Hardy in the film I, Tanya. It is great. We highly recommend it. It is on... I literally just watched it the other day. Hulu? Hulu. Let's say Hulu. I'll find out later for you, but I'm sure it's Hulu. Tanya Harding is a fiercely competitive ice skater with dreams of making it to the Olympic team, and she was on her way. It was Harding who made history by becoming the first woman to land a triple axel, earning her the gold medal at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in 1991. Kerrigan took the bronze. At that time, Harding was the better skater of the two. But Kerrigan was more polished. She was the one getting endorsement deals. She essentially became the face of U.S. figure skating, even with a bronze medal. Cut to the battle for a spot on the 1994 Winter Olympics team. During a practice session on January 6th, the original January 6th. Jesus. January 6, 1994, Kerrigan walked up the ice and towards the locker rooms. She was hit on her right leg with a collapsible baton. There was a camera crew there that heard her screaming and started filming. They didn't catch the attacker, but they captured the immediate aftermath. The following, the newspapers the following day plastered Kerrigan's traumatized face on the cover of their newspapers. And as she screamed out in tears, why, 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 why me? The video is also on YouTube. But I think it's a little bit hard to watch. Yeah. It's sad. Fortunately for Kerrigan, the attacker didn't break any bones, but her injuries were bad enough that she couldn't compete in the national championships. Harding wins gold at the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championships and is guaranteed a spot at the Winter Olympics. So the police have started their investigation already, and by January 14th, most of the criminals are formally charged. Harding's ex-husband hired two hitmen. The plan started as murder, <laughs> but then eased, this, eased its way back into just a whack in the knee. In the end, Kerrigan was hit in the thigh. So, like, why did they do it? Harding grew up really poor, but she had this talent and this opportunity to truly change her life and her family's financial outcome. But it seemed like Kerrigan was just in the way. I mean, it's got to be hard for someone like that where you see... Again, it's this idea of, like... Where's the starting line for these two women? And yeah. and when you feel like you're so far behind, sometimes that turns to resorting to more extreme measures to get ahead because you don't have that advantage. And it's yeah. not saying it's right or it's healthy or it's a good idea no. at all. It's giving you a viewpoint. Like Harding was very poor and like Kerrigan's family had money. And a lot of sports are kind of about like who you know and what you wear and like, Tanya wasn't super polished and like she maybe didn't get the scores that she should have because she wasn't refined enough, but she was talented mm -hmm. and she was strong. And for some people, it didn't matter. Well, the attack on Kerrigan backfired. The plot and the criminals were revealed, but Harding claimed not to know any of it, especially not to have assisted in it. The United States Figure Skating Association allowed both Harding and Kerrigan to take the ice for the Olympics. Harding has a hard time, her lace and her skate breaks, causing her to stop. She's allowed to start over, but her nerves have gotten to her at this point, and she flops. She comes in eighth place at the Olympics. Kerrigan goes on to win the silver medal, and when they get back to the state, states, Harding pleads guilty to conspiracy to hinder prosecution. She receives three years probation and a fine. She also is banned from the USFSA forever. With the exception of Harding, everyone else involved in Kerrigan's attack serves jail time. That Olympics was the most watched and most covered skating event ever. So why does the media love drama? One, ratings equal money. 
Real life drama is free. You don't have to pay anyone to write a script and you don't have to pay actors. The tabloids can get away with writing headlines so crazy that you have to buy a magazine. But as long as they say allegedly, they're safe from being called liars and being sued. Reality TV, gossip, and tabloids offer big results while putting forth little to no money or capital. The media is often used as a goalpost for how women should be or aim to be. Take Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie, for example. Whoever you were reading, rooting for was who you are, right? Being Team Aniston meant that you were a good girl. You believed in the sanctity of marriage. You are or were trying to be the girl next door. You were friendly, sweet, and innocent, but in a sexy way. Being Team Jolie meant that you believed that your love was stronger than marriage. You're edgy and too cool for rules or old-fashioned morals. You're worldly, exotic, and challenging, but also in a sexy way. Representation is important, and the media can perpetuate the image that women are all catty and out to fight. But it's getting better. The media is slowly letting go of pitting women against one another. Yeah, in the past we had mean girls. Now we have the sex life of college girls, insecure and bad sisters. These women might fight, but it's because they love each other deeply and are working towards something. These women are supportive and encouraging to their friends in an honest and kind way. Broad City and Booksmart are other examples of two best friends of equal importance. No one is second fiddle. They don't fight over a love interest and they love each other loudly. Even workplace frenemies are taking a walk, too. The Bold Type is about a group of women starting out at, a, at the same magazine. They aren't sabotaging each other. They're supportive because the work is hard enough. Or because the world is hard enough. Why not both? Why not both? <laughs> the focus on younger, healthy female friendships is very new. The media typically reserves well-adjusted female friendships for older women. Think Golden Girls, Grace and Frankie, Good Girls, and even Sex in the City. The idea is that the fight is over. These women have the power or the money or the husbands. They've established their life. So there isn't a need to compete. Now is the time to lean on your friendships. But we've strayed too far from our topic, meaning female friendships just became an episode topic. So why do we fight? Let's think about this a little bit more. Why do women feel the need to compete against one another? Science says it comes down to three factors, food, shelter, and mates. This might look a little different by modern standards, but how do you get food and shelter? The workplace. This happens to be where most female competition takes place. In our episode on leadership in the workforce, we mentioned that in corporate America, women hold only 4% of leadership positions in Fortune 500 companies. Women need to fight for their positions or they're left behind. Female jealousy in the workplace may be rooted in survival-oriented competitiveness. If there is one woman standing between you and that job that will provide food and shelter, conflict is bound to come up. Gossiping, sabotaging, gaslighting, downplaying your success, or discrediting you in front of others is a typical tricks, are typical tricks that are used in the workplace competition game. The goal of these behaviors is to thin the herd. Less women who think they have a chance at the C-suite level job means some women have a stronger chance. The solution? Hire more women. There's no need to be cutthroat for resources if there are enough resources. If you are a woman in a position of power, don't just close the door behind you. Get as many women in as you can. So the feuds we mentioned before happen mostly in the entertainment industry, which is slightly different from the corporate world, but like not by much. So we spoke about this a bit in our Megan Thee Stallion episode and earlier in this episode, that the, the whole thing about there being one spot in its mind, like that energy doesn't serve any real purpose. 
The feud between Tyra Banks and Naomi Campbell was caused by the need to be the one. The fashion world was holding space for one black woman, so they had to fight over that one spot. The Cardi B and Nicki feud comes down to the same thing. Uh, Nicki was the main female rapper for a while. More female rappers coming on the scene and taking up space might worry her, so she had to lash out, or she felt the need to lash out. Well, Cardi doesn't like to be disrespected, and when she feels that way, she lashes out. So the feud continues. Female rappers are encouraged to compete with one another. Meanwhile, there are countless male rappers, and many coexist or fight without feeling the need to emerge as the king of rap. What's the solution here? Make room at the table. Hold a Lilith fair, but for female rappers, I would go to that. What would you call that? I don't know. I'm just curious if you have a, if you have an know. idea for our Lilith Fair of rappers. Our, yeah, our little Lilith Fair, but for I don't know, like rap girlies. All right. I don't know, something like that, I, or some kind of play on Lilith Fair. Lilith, Lilith Unfair. I'm just kidding. That would be the metal no, version. No, don't put that negative energy <laughs> out there. Lilith Fair was all about like peace and love, like good hippie shit, but also like good music. So. We'll figure out what the name of the rap little affair would be. But there's room to share if people get over their fears. Yeah. And if we can shut down the patriarchy. Oh, my God. Honestly. (laughs) Right. Honestly, this logic could have been very helpful for every feud we discussed. How powerful could England and Scotland have become if Mary and Elizabeth had worked out a power structure? We might be there right now. (laughs) They might have taken over everything. Hmm. Facts. We might be drinking tea right now. Anyway. As psychologist Meredith Fuller explains in a 2013 Psychology Today article, it is easy to blame the woman for their lack of support for each other, but this competition is really a product of a society that makes women feel like they need to compete to succeed. We can't blame it all on the patriarchy. Maybe it's like a 60-40 thing. But the patriarchy can get into women's heads. The discrimination and societal expectations can become all we know, and this gives us a reason to compete. So as we consider how female feuds, especially those that don't directly involve ourselves, impact us, we think it's worth asking a few questions. What drives our pleasure in consuming women pitting themselves against one another? Are female feuds and the encouragement of it by the media simply a patriarchal device made to hold us back from self-empowerment by pitting us against one another? Or is there a lesson to be learned about how women have historically had to fight for what little space is offered to them in a male-dominated world, even if it is at the expense of other women? And honestly, again, why not both? Exactly. The view that women are passive and uncompetitive is wrong. But how we go about approaching our competitive natures is something that we can deal with beyond the context of traditional so-called female feuds. We've talked about how the media has portrayed female feuds throughout this episode, but we want to reiterate that those who tell our stories, the media, shape and control our culture. So, like, what does this mean? Well, if we're constantly seeing stories about women fighting and battling one another, then it'll become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? But if only one woman at a time is granted the spotlight, it's not surprising if this goes down. Instead of fighting for our turns, we need to dismantle that current power structure and create the space for as many women at the table as possible. Yeah, or make our own damn tables. Yes. We have to change the perception that's been in place and has been reinforced for centuries, as we've just proven. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As consumers of female feuds, we have to stop being complicit in vilifying these women. 
Pitting powerful women against one another is an easy way to control them and to keep them down. Assertive women who don't play by the rules are a threat to the status quo, so creating a narrative that pits them against one another in a stereotypical way is the perfect way to take away their autonomy. There has to be a better way, and there definitely is. Champion the women around you, create more opportunities, and allow for increased success for all. Join forces with other women. Creating a united front has been proven to better influence those in power and actually lead to change. Don't talk badly about other women, gossip about them, or throw them under the bus. If you have feedback for another woman, share it with her directly and respectfully instead of talking about her behind her back. And when it comes to cat fights or female feuds in the media, try to avoid engagement with them as much as possible. Those clicks equal money, and if it pays well enough, the media will keep covering it. I think we need to ask ourselves why we enjoy consuming the content surrounding these feuds. Like, what are, what are we trying to expose? That women, and especially successful women, are not good people? Mm. Or are we trying to determine if she's vain or selfish or a bad mother? Or maybe we think her behavior is offensive, or that she is toxic, or that she's unaware of her own privilege? Does this make us feel better about ourselves? And if so, maybe we should look inside and ask ourselves why. Sure, some women do cause harm. Some women can be mean, rude, and cruel. But so can men. They're not better than women in that regard. But looking at the tabloids and social media, you'd be hard-pressed to see that. Call-out culture disproportionately affects women. Social media and celebrity gossip accounts disproportionately target women over men. The media and in turn society allows men to be more virtuous, more complicated, more acceptable. Men are seen as visionaries and ambitious leaders or even creatives who are just misunderstood when they engage in the same behaviors as many women engage in. They are passionate and they are never considered emotional. We have to challenge that. The next time you see a headline about two women who are feuding, ask if you have seen the same kind of stories about men and why that truly is. Hint? It's not because they don't feud with one another. The exploitation of so-called feuding women is just another weapon of misogyny. It's the patriarchy working hard as fuck to keep women down. Remember, true power doesn't come from rivalry. It comes from uplifting, empowering, and supporting other women. The system is already rigged against us. Let's do our best to not play into that system any longer. All right, final thoughts, takeaways. I always thought that I was like super chill and like above fighting with other women. But in reality, I have like so much indirect aggression. Um, So my takeaway is me. Like I learned a lot about myself. Uh, Like that is all. No. Um, (laughs) Yes, a lot about me. And and guess just like my position in it. Like Mm -hmm. I'm not innocent in like fighting with like women in the workplace. I definitely think it's something that I haven't done in a while and it's something to be really mindful of because I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to compete with them like my office has a lot of women and I love that for us and I haven't seen any I think because we're we're kind of that like not perfect example but like a good example of like there's not a reason to like be cut through because like they're gonna hire another woman there's gonna Mm -hmm. be a reason for you to get promoted like there's there's an opportunity there and I don't think a lot of people have that and that makes me feel really sad for people it makes me given the opportunity like I'm gonna try and get like a woman promoted like I'm gonna try and do what I can because it's really important to have women in that workplace in a higher position like it it almost eliminates 
everything we're saying about competition. Like, I just don't feel those vibes in my office. That's awesome. Because there is a space for you. There will Mm -hmm. be a space for you. Yeah. Well, what really got me thinking with this episode was how much we as bystanders play into female feuds, right? Like, kind of like you were talking about, like, your role in it is there's Mm -hmm. the role in it, like, in the workplace, but there's also the role that we have in consuming it. Like, we like the drama, so we pick up that magazine or we fall for the clickbait. And, of course, clicks equal money, Mm -hmm. right? So the media keeps it up. It's up to us to fight back, right? Like, it sounds kind of maybe counterintuitive to an episode like this but my takeaway is that we have to stop caring so much because it only feeds into the drama and so i think all the examples that we talked about are really key because we're acknowledging that these were all things where the media was just so over the top and we got so invested in it and at the end of the day why yeah anyway resources and references let's break it down So there is one by Anne Campbell called Female Competition, Causes, Constraints, Content, and Context by Anne Campbell. It's time to break the cycle of female rivalry by Michaela Kiner. Brad Pitt was the only winner of the Aniston Jolie tabloid battle by Constance Grady. And a timeline of the real feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford by Emma Dibden. So that one, we left a lot out. There was, like we said, it was a decade-long feud. But I also recommend watching that um, feuds, the Ryan Murphy feud. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of stuff left out. They were, they hated each other, and Hollywood was like, "Give us more, give us more." So let us know what you thought of this episode. Do you have anything that you'd like to add to the conversation? Anything we might have left out? Do you have any suggestions of women we should cover in the future? Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at BigReputationsPod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends, your family, and some women that you hate. Use this podcast as your olive branch. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Check out our Big Reputations merch. The link is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all our social media platforms. Be sure to take a picture and tag us when you make a purchase. And remember, we've got a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash Big Reputations Pod. Or just check out our link in our Linktree. Whether you pledge 2 or $5, you'll get a shout out in our episodes. And if you choose the $5 level, you'll have exclusive access to our Little Reputations episodes. They're short mini episodes about amazing women throughout history. Next up. Lily Allen. Stick around after the episode. We'll share a short teaser from that little rep. All right, Kim, what quote do you have to wrap us up this week? So this one is, being a strong woman is very important to me, but doing it all on my own is not. And that's by Reba McIntyre. Awesome. And as always, believe women. Ellen got to decide who she wanted to work with, and she picked Greg Kirsten and Mark Ronson. The group finished her album in two weeks. Ellen's debut album, All Right Still, was released July of 2006. The lead single was Smile. Smile was released to the iTunes store in the United Kingdom in the spring of 2006 and spent its first week at number one on the iTunes chart. Ellen spent 2008 to 2011 doing tours, shows, and festivals.